What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. And this episode, well, I gotta say, I'm really excited for this episode because I got to sit down with Jim Flynn, and Jim Flynn cut Haunting of Hill House. Now, if you haven't seen this Netflix show and you're into scary movies where it's more about the psychological sort of haunting or the haunting of a house, not gory stuff, then you've got to check out this show. And I was excited to talk to Jim because I I love this show. I thought it was one of the best haunting style horror films that I've seen. Now, before we get into this interview, I do want to say that Niraj Patel is the editor of this episode and Carly, our usual editor, is off in Korea. So I wish her all the best in Korea and thanks to Niraj for covering. All that said, here's my interview with Jim Flynn. So when I was doing a bit of research on your work, you had done some work with Alan Heim back on uh, Alpha Dogs. And I'm wondering what you learned from Alan that you've sort of used throughout your career, but also on House on Haunted Hill. Yeah, Alan is a dear friend, and I consider him a mentor, actually. I wouldn't know where to begin to talk about what I've learned from Alan. He taught me quite a lot about quite a number of things. But I think what he taught me that helped me the most on Hill House and that helps me generally is about making sure that you care about the characters in the story. Ultimately, that's what is going to matter. And the most effective way to do that, at least in what I've learned from Alan, is sincere performance. I think probably more than anything, what I learned from Alan is how to find a very, very sincere and sympathetic performance. And that sure helped on Hill House. What is it that makes a sincere performance for you? You know, it would be hard to really kind of nail that down. You know, that's almost kind of a feeling that you've got to get and you've got to be around it enough to pull it out and recognize it. Generally, there's a lot of things that actors do that I do try to avoid, like when they're being very demonstrative or when I feel like a performance is being forced. I try to avoid using stuff like that. It's a hard thing to to really kind of nail down, but you kind of know it when you see it. Now, Mike Flanagan, it seems like he had very much had a vision for the show. And so I'm wondering what the early discussions were like between the two of you and how you worked with him to help him achieve this vision. Well, Mike certainly has a vision for the show. Mike's got a mind that's working at an accelerated rate. He and I had a couple of conversations about this show very, very early on when I just had heard that he had been adapting or was working on adapting the, the Shirley Jackson novel, which... I thought was fantastic. I mean, I read it probably, you know, when I was a teenager. And then I reread it when he mentioned that he was going to be working on this thing. And I remember thinking, how are you going to make this little book a Netflix series? And he kind of already had it worked out. And it wasn't until several months later that I started getting some of the scripts in from the guys over at Intrepid that I started to understand exactly what Mike's plan was. And I mean, it's fantastic. The direction that he went with it, how he sort of incorporated some of the tones, you know, more than the themes and sort of used characters in his own way to sort of make this story a real signature Mike Flanagan piece. I think it was it was very, very well crafted. Mm-hmm. Well, his other work so fantastic, like Hush and Oculus. Yeah. 
Yeah, I met Mike on Oculus. We worked on that together, and that was sort of a defining moment in my career to understand what this guy was going to end up doing. And then we sort of went in different directions. He really wanted to edit his own material, and I had an opportunity to go to, to New York and work on another movie, actually with Alan and, and the Cassavetes movie. And so he went and edited his own features, and he still continues to edit his own features. I just think when he got this Netflix thing that it was too daunting a task for him to put together 10 hours of his own material. So, we, you know, he knew we had a good working relationship, so he, he called me in from that. Well, I was going to say, he also edited some of House on Haunted Hill. Yes, he did. He did episode one. He would come in the cutting room and sit down in the seat and he would, you know, make changes on his own and stuff like that, which was totally fine. We would just have conversations about how he wanted the scenes to go and things like that. We have a very good working relationship that way. How does that, because if a director comes into the room and they sat down in my chair, I'd be very, I guess, uneasy about that. (laughs) So how does that relationship work so that you're comfortable with that, but he's also respectful of your space? Well, first of all, you got to know that Mike's just a great guy. He's a really, really great guy. And he's very particular about his stuff. And when we're working on Hill House, I would send him, you know, copies of cuts and sort of get his notes and work on those. And then it wasn't really until the last kind of polished things that he really wanted to do that he kind of had in mind going into it that he would want to make those last few handful of changes. But it's not contentious at all. And certainly there are other directors who are much less comfortable doing that. But Mike, he certainly knows his material. He certainly understands rhythm and pace. And he's extremely respectful. You know, we would sit in the room together when he was working on something and we would just kind of talk our way through it. I would kind of explain to him, you know, what my thinking was in the scene. And there was plenty of times when he just said, you know what, that's better than I would have done. Let's keep it this way, you know, things like that. So it's a very respectful relationship. Now, you mentioned the tone in the book and the series has a really unique tone to it. It feels eerie, but it's not it doesn't rely on the jump scares like it has jump scares. But like some of the lower end horrors, it'll be like jump scare after jump scare after jump scare. And that's sort of what's building the tension in the tone. And yet this sort of lingers a lot. And I'm wondering what came from the book and how did you work with the footage to get that feeling in that tone? I think the real advantage to this movie, I mean, like you're pointing out, I mean, yes, it's horror. It's sort of framed as a horror thing, but there's really so much more going on that it made the horror elements really kind of stand out. And it also, like I was saying earlier about, you know, my work with Alan and how, you know, you really need to care about these characters. The scripts and the performances were so good that you could almost remove the horror elements entirely from the series. And it would still be a very gripping family drama about, you know, grief and survival and pain and remorse, you know what I mean? But it has these horror elements in it. And I think that was always what, you know, Mike wanted and I wanted as well to make it almost stand on its own. I don't even know if I need to use the word almost, but it could stand on its own as a drama about a family that suffered through trauma and, you know, how they coped with it. Because there's a whole bunch of stuff that is not even really horror related. Like episode five, for example, the Bentnick lady that I did, there is a love story in there. Two people fall in love and there's a wedding. They get engaged on New Year's Eve and then there's a wedding and then her husband dies and then she's on medication and seeing a psychologist. I basically just described episode five and it doesn't even really sound like a horror show. 
But what you have in it is this really Shirley Jackson-esque type bent neck lady who's haunting this woman throughout her life and at these different stages in her life. And as she tries to grasp for joy and sort of escape the path that she's in, this specter keeps reappearing. And at the end, you find out that it's, spoiler alert, you find out that it's her, that she has been haunting her entire life. By that, yes, it's framed as a horror episode or a part of a horror series. But again, on its own, it's really a story about a woman who is trying to get away from a painful, painful past. And she is stuck in it. It's funny that you say that it's essentially a drama slash horror because everyone I told about the show whenever I was talking to people and trying to convince them to watch it is I'd always pitch it as a family who basically experiences a horror event back when they were younger and how it destroys the family and essentially tears the family apart and like them trying to re-piece things together at an older age. So it's almost like what would happen to a family after the haunting is sort of how I pitched it. Yeah, that's that's really clever. And in fact, Mike and I had conversations, you know, along those lines and uh, and Trevor Macy as well. I remember that the, the conversation was always what happens after the horror movie? What are the events after the horror has occurred? That was kind of a jumping off point for those guys to kind of write this story. And I think they did so very effectively. And also very often people come up to me knowing that I had done this project. And I hear this a lot. People saying, I don't like horror, but I love The Haunting of Hill House. I get that more than any other comment about this show, because I think it sort of outgrew the, you know, the sort of chainsaws and teenagers horror, you know, almost stigma that these sort of things have and sort of transcended that, which I'm really, really proud of. Now, one of the things I was going to ask you is similar to my previous question. One of the things that, you know, you'll see in a horror movie is they'll rely heavily on the music to build the tone. And yet in this series, like there's music there, but it's not the driving force for the emotion. And I'm wondering how you worked with Mike Flanagan to determine how the music was going to play a role in this film and how you used it in the cutting process. Well, Mike is one of those rare directors, you know, working right now. It used to be pretty common, and I still work with some directors that this is the case, where he really doesn't want there to be any music when he sees the first cut. And I think that's a really, really wise position to take because you can cover up a lot with music and you can sell some stuff that isn't working that well with music. And I think that if you lean too heavily on music, you don't really realize the kind of holes that are there. You know what I mean? And when you strip away music from a scene that you think is working, you realize, oh, goodness, this is not working nearly as much as I thought, you know, and you can get in a lot of trouble with that because obviously the Newton brothers, which are they're genius and I, I love their music and I love the music that they did for Hell House. But, you know, obviously you don't have composed music. You're just putting in temp music. You're sort of like, well, there was this other movie that had this theme that was kind of like this. So I'll use that score here. And you're sort of, you know, tricking your director or tricking yourself even into thinking, yeah, this scene is really working or this scene is really scary. And then you have to take that music out and then another composer has to come in and sort of recreate that. And I think that Mike is really, really smart in that he doesn't want to leave on music and he doesn't really want to lean too hard on sound design. He wants it to feel natural and he wants it to stand up on its own, you know? And then the music is just a really nice addition to that and it really kind of helps. It really sells more of the sort of the pain and the, the drama elements. And I think we used it much more effectively for those elements than we ever needed it to push the scares. I talked about there being not many jump scares, but I do have to ask about the one jump scare that everyone talks about. That's the one in the car. 
because you cut that one and i'm wondering can you take me through how you cut that one because what's interesting is you, you sort of sit in the car on that her face for a split second and then come out of the car whereas i almost feel like less experienced editors would probably have the jump scare cut to the car crashing or something like that so i'm wondering how you tackled that scene well i mean there's a couple elements to it and i think that the reason that that jump scare works as effectively as it does is because it was basically eight episodes in the making you know we haven't been doing that to the audience you know so they're not on edge waiting for something to jump out of the darkness and we've established who these characters are and what they want from each other and we know that the you know the, the sort of family dynamics that are going on and what's leading up to that and so when you're in in this car watching this scene, it almost doesn't feel like a horror scene. You're watching a movie about two sisters that are having this, you know, this disagreement and suddenly, oh my God, we're back in a horror movie and it just, it's shocking and it's frightening. And I think, I think I wanted it to be on camera just so it really sets in your mind the event that happened. And I think I took as many frames as I could of Nell, you know, cause she's sort of decomposed and she looks really scary. I wanted to use as much of that as I could. I couldn't really go much further. <laughs> I think I, I wouldn't have minded going much further. But what happened was the actors were generally frightened. And then they started giggling because the way that Mike set it up, and it was genius, he had you know pages and pages of dialogue that these women were going to go back and forth talking about the events that happened the night of the funeral. And they were probably on page three of seven. And he had the actress playing Nell in the backseat and he just kind of whispered into her ear, it's like, whenever you kind of get sick of their conversation, jump up and, you know, scream. So they didn't know that that was the moment that she was going to pop out. So they were really frightened. And after their genuine reaction of sheer terror, it only took them a moment to sort of break character and start giggling about how funny the situation is where they're genuinely scared on set. So if I had given you another few frames, you would have started to see some smiles cracking. So I had to get out before that. When I did some sound stuff, the first thing I noticed is working on a horror film, it's not as scary with the sound not fully in there. So I'm wondering, from an editorial standpoint, what makes for a good scare? Like when you're cutting something and trying to make something scary, what do you find are some of the tricks and techniques that help make it scary? It's really story dependent. You know, I mean, that, that event in the car is certainly scary. And I think it's scary for quite obvious reasons. I mean, it's a sudden event, you know, where you think you're comfortable and suddenly you're, you're in danger. Um, there are other moments in the show and in cinema where a scare is built differently, where you begin to feel like there's more of a slow burn to it. When young Theo runs into young Shirley's room, I think it's in episode two, and she hears banging on her walls, and suddenly that's building and building and building. You know, the first bang is kind of a, a little mini scare, and then it's growing and growing and growing, and it's becoming this other scare where you're just surrounded by this cacophony of sound and paintings are banging off the wall. And, you know, that's sort of a different build scare. And then there's just sort of like elevated tension. Um, there's a scene that I know is in episode two where Shirley, as a grown-up, is downstairs, and she's just finished making up Nell's corpse. She's about to exit the room where they do corpse painting and she turns and looks over her shoulder and her mother is sitting up on what had just been an empty table. Now, Shirley doesn't scream. Shirley doesn't run out of the room. Shirley just stops for a second. She had just turned off the light and she's just looking at this figure, you know, that is her mom. And then um, 
Michael Fumiari, the DP, did this really cool effect where they did this uh, Kukaloris thing on her face so that it was sort of reminiscent of an earlier scene when she was at the cat funeral on Olivia's face. And she still are holding on Shirley and she's just, you can just feel that there's this building fear inside of her. And I think that's a different type of scare where you just put the character in a really horrifying situation and just kind of hold it there. And we just let those moments sit and sit and sit. And then uh, Olivia takes this purple box that we had seen in that cat funeral. And then you get this quick sort of abrupt sound scare that causes her to flip the light on and then she looks around and you know you feel like the tension's released a little bit but I still feel like I had some ammunition in that scene with the tension that we had just built so Shirley then closes the door to the morgue she turns off the light and closes the door and normally that would be the end of the scene right I'd be like all right well we're out of this one lights off doors closed but I left that on the screen the dark room Mel's corpse, empty table, just sitting there for a moment because I knew that people who were watching it are still leaning forward thinking there's going to be something else here. You know, if you build that currency sometimes in a scene, you're able to even do more and sort of move the audience, you know, more in, in the direction you want them to feel. And in that case, what I wanted them to feel, what we wanted them to feel was just discomfort, you know, in that house. Now, I have one last question that I like to ask all the editors I've interviewed, and that's, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? <laughs> what's my favorite guilty pleasure film? Uh, you know, I, I think that if I'm going to watch guilty pleasure films, and it's kind of perfect now because I have a young family. I have a 13-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old son, but I really, really love the movies that I loved when I was a kid. Um, we just recently watched All the Back to the Futures, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. They're a little young for Breakfast Club, but I can't wait. You know, those kind of 80s movies that it was kind of a pre-ironic age and they were sincere and they were fun and they were, um, it's just, a, it's been a pleasure to dive back into those movies because I remember them so fondly. And if I'm ever sort of channel surfing, as we used to call it, and I stumble across one of those, I have a very, very hard time moving away from them. Is there a guilty pleasure horror film that you liked? You know, I didn't really grow up enjoying horror movies very much. I think it wasn't until the horror movies started kind of turning a corner in, I want to say, maybe the early 90s, where they were sort of adopting the more Northern European and Japanese style horror movies. Maybe The Grudge, with that first Grudge movie, was the first horror movie that I was like, whoa, this is really kind of different, you know? Because up until that point, it was all very, they're fine films, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and the Friday the 13th of Halloween and all those movies are, are great, but I, I never really was that interested in them. It wasn't until they got kind of under your skin creepy that I really started to kind of dig them, like The Ring and the Japanese version of The Grudge and certainly, you know, the Americanized versions of some of those movies that I really kind of started to like those. I think horror now has been elevated the last, you know, because of those, you know, that influence. I think that horror in, in America has been elevated because of those movies and they're a lot of fun now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for allowing me to interview. It was a real pleasure, and I, um, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. You too. Have a good one. Bye. So that was my interview with Jim. I'd like to thank Jim Flynn for allowing me to interview him, and I'd also like to thank Naraj Patel for cutting this episode. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.